to guide us. We know that you're in control. Help us to trust in you. Help us to enjoy and apply the freedom that you give us in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so as we start our text today, the Israelites have fled from Egypt. And last week we saw how God was kind of leading them around the wilderness, partially to induce the Egyptians into thinking they were helpless and aimless as they were wandering around. So we read in verse 5, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now, Pharaoh's people or his servants that they're talking about there are probably his inner court of advisors, his cabinet, if you will, the people that helped him make decisions. You know, and notice what concerns them. It's not so much that the Israelites have fled and they need to be killed. They fled and they need to be brought back. They need to come back to be slaves serving the Egyptians because the the Israelites right now are no longer going to be part of this economic engine, this economic powerhouse of Egypt. And perhaps even they were concerned that if the Israelites ever settle in another land, that they might turn against the Egyptians with other opposing nations. So then we see Pharaoh and his inner court mount their chariots, and along with the rest of the chariots, the horsemen and the army of Egypt, they start after the Israelites. And it doesn't take them long, does it, to overtake them by the sea. And you pronounce those words well. I'm glad I didn't have to pronounce those words, so thank you very much. You did great. The Israelites see them approaching, and, and you know, it says last week, I think, it said that they went out in like an army, and it said they went out boldly today, but you know what? They've been slaves for 400 years. They're not a well-trained army, okay? They, they may be in some sort of an array, but they're not a well-trained army, so they're described as being very frightened, and who can blame them? And so they say to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that they, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? You see, they thought that the Egyptians were going to come to slaughter them, not to take them back into captivity. They continue, why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And indeed, the Israelites had complained to Moses. You can read that back in Exodus 5 and 6, we went through that before. Now, what seems really quite amazing here, isn't it, is their selective memory, right? They, don't they remember their lives were miserable? I mean, they've only been gone a short time. I mean, don't they remember this? And, and this isn't the only time they're going to make this complaint. Twice more, as they cross in the journey to the promised land, they're going to complain to Moses that they should, he should have just left them alone. Over in uh, chapter 16, verse 3, they say, We wish you had left us alone to these wonderful lives when we sat by pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. That was their life as slaves. All right. How could they do this? How could they forget so quickly the miseries of their lives? How did they do this? Well, I would caution us and me if we have a tendency to quickly judge the Israelites, for their complaints. Haven't we all, when things seem unbearable, thought about the good old days, the rosy past? I'll bet you in this last year, you've thought that way, right? Have you thought about how good things used to be, remembering everything, but in doing so, don't we just remember the good things and forget the bad things? And the other thing that's often the case is it might be good for you and me in the past, Maybe, maybe it's not good for all the children of God. With the current state of the pandemic and this recent political stuff, it's, 
it's almost, it's almost easy to forget the racial stuff that was going on in the middle of last year. I mean, you know, that seems like a long time ago. And I recall people saying back in the middle of 2020, way back when, and I remember thinking sometime myself how difficult these times are as we have to confront these things. And I wished maybe they were, maybe things were like they were in the past when we didn't have such conflict. Well, that was easy for me to say because I enjoy white privilege. These were not the experiences of our uh, brothers and sisters of color and my selective forgetting of those times of racial conflict and discord in our nation's history and in my life. I lived through the 60s if you want to know how old I am. So that was really chaotic back then. In other words, we all tend to do what the Israelites did when our expectations are dashed or our present experience seems unbearable. So we should be careful not to look down on the Israelites. We should learn from them and we should pause and consider how much of an affront to God such thoughts must have been when he had provided so much to them. And as we do so, we should remember how much of an affront to God it is such thoughts are in our hearts when God has done so much for us. Then we come to what is perhaps Moses' finest hour as a leader. But Moses said to the people, verse 13, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This is the role of a leader, not only in the church, but in our society. Speak the truth. Don't speak lies. Don't exaggerate. Don't blame and demean others, but speak the truth. That's what a leader is supposed to do. Moreover, this truth that Moses speaks comes from his experience with God. In these two verses, we see an enormous amount about God. We see that God is the dispeller of fear, a comforter of those who are afraid. God is a deliverer from distress. God invites and expects his people to trust him because He says, stand firm, you need only be still. And God removes danger. And God is a warrior against the forces of evil. Now, the timing and application of these things that are under God's control, Moses isn't really sure about necessarily, but he offers strong assurances to the Israelites that because God has already told the Israelites through him that God's plan is to humiliate the Egyptians once again, then he can be confident and tell them, do not fear. So then the next verse is really weird. It's a little puzzling. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. So is God rebuking Moses here? I mean, the, the, the you in that phrase, why are, you, uh, uh, why are you crying out to me is actually singular. It's not plural. So, so what's going on here? Is God rebuking Moses? Well, no, not at all. Although the people will formally ask Moses to speak for them in Exodus 20, even already, it, excuse me, it is the case that when the Lord is speaking to Moses, he is most often speaking to all the Israelites. So God is rebuking the Israelites, not Moses. And then God directs Moses to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand before, uh, but before he does that, verse 19 Excuse me for a moment. 
the angel of the Lord, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. So there are a couple of wonderful things, I think, in these two verses. First, we again see the pillar of cloud and fire. And this is, this is really the presence of God with them. Because in, in verse 13, it says the Lord was going before them in a pillar. I mean, the Lord was there. And in our passage today, the reference is to the angel of God. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God is often stated as an appearance of the angel of God. So this pillar is really a theophany, an appearance of God to them, traveling right along with them and guiding them. The cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. And as I was preparing for this sermon over the last few weeks, I've had opportunity in my devotional time to read Genesis and Revelation. And Genesis 1 says, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, the thing that's surprising about that is that's before he created the sun, moon, and stars. So where was the light coming from? It was God who was the light. So just as God in the pillar was light, so God himself was the light at the dawn of creation. And in Revelation, when the new heavens is joined to the new earth, verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 5, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. The presence of God in the pillar gives darkness to those who reject him and light to those who love him. But it wasn't meant to be that way. Because we see in the creation and in the consummation, God will be light to all creation. All right. So what should we take from this passage today? Well, honestly, we could talk again about the sovereignty and providence and protection of God. And I probably will touch on those a little bit as we go. Because we see it clearly in action again here, don't we? And again, given these last weeks and the upcoming week, such a reminder not be, might not be lost on us. And we could talk about the same things Todd talked about last week, God's purposeful way, his caring presence. But I actually want to reflect here on something else. I want us to consider the Israelites, as they are moving, for the first time in hundreds of years from slavery into freedom away from the oppression and slavery of the Egyptians and into freedom. What do you think was going through the minds of the Israelites as they did this? What must they have been thinking in these first days and weeks of freedom? You know, I think it's hard for us to imagine. I mean, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. We have people who think that wearing a mask is somehow oppression. If we think that's oppression, we have no view what slavery really is, okay? I mean, we just as a culture don't understand that, okay? These people were completely oppressed. So let's, let's imagine for a moment what that, some aspects of what that could have been like. You're born into this environment, so you don't know anything different than a life and culture of slavery. If somebody tells you when you have to start work, what age, you know, how young you're going to be. Someone telling you what you will do, how much you will do. When you will do it. And by the way, if you don't, I'm going to beat you or kill you. Someone telling you when you get to go home, if you get to go home. Someone watching all the time. Someone able to take anything you own, including, including your own family. All this 
and you have no choice, no recourse, no law to protect you, no one to whom to appeal, you're a piece of property, you're a piece of equipment. And just like a piece of or a property or equipment, you're owned by somebody, you're not employed, you're owned, you have no rights, and you can be disposed of when you're no longer of any use. That's slavery and oppression. What must it have been like for the Israelites as they moved into those first steps of freedom? What were they thinking? It must have been overwhelming, terrifying, exciting, exhilarating. Their heads must have been spinning as they stepped away out of Egypt into the wilderness. They now had to decide what to do each day with that freedom. How would they use their freedom? What would they choose to do and how would they do it? Well, we see in our passage today that sometimes freedom leads to times of danger and fearfulness as opposition mounts and difficulties arise. And again, like us, there's this tendency to look back to the good old days, right? Selectively remembering what was good about those days, but but when things get tough, maybe it's better we just go back. And although we won't get to it during this study of Exodus, because we're going to finish up next week, we know that the Israelites will not always use their freedom wisely as they continue into the wilderness. Later in Exodus, they are going to turn back to worship a golden calf, an idol, while Moses is with God at Mount Sinai. They're going to complain about a lack of food and a lack of water. They're going to blame Moses. They're going to blame God. And ultimately, they're going to fail to enter the promised land when they might have for fear of what's going to happen to them. They don't always use their freedom very wisely. So how does this relate to us? I would ask us, do we use our freedom wisely? And here I'm not talking about the freedom we have in our culture Although given our times, I think that it could be a fruitful area of discussion for us as followers of Jesus. I'm talking about the freedom we have in Christ. The Bible says a lot about freedom. Keller says the Bible is dripping with the language of freedom. I love that. The Bible is dripping with the language of freedom. And I don't think we talk about freedom very much. We talk, we, I don't know if you noticed, there were several songs. And in the prayer, we talked about being freed from sin. We talk, we talk about being free, but we don't talk about being, we talk about being freed from sin, but we don't talk about freedom as such. So I want to explore that a little bit today. It's such, it's such a common thing. Jesus's first sermon, right? In Luke 4, he quotes Isaiah 61 and says, he's come to proclaim freedom and to release the oppressed. In John 8, Jesus told the Jews, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Verse 36, so if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. In Romans 8, Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And in Galatians 5, it says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So what does it mean to be free in Christ? 
That's really the question, right? And I'm going to give you a, a, a short list maybe. Well, actually, first thing I'm going to do is tell you what it doesn't mean, all right? Freedom in Christ does not mean that a believer is free to just do whatever they want to do. All right, now that's the secularist view of freedom. The secularist view of freedom is I can do, I can think, I can be anything I want, and you cannot tell me any differently. Nothing can encumber my freedom as long as I'm not hurting somebody else. That's the modern view of freedom. The problem with this idea is that it actually fails on its own terms. It's completely inconsistent. You can't live this way. Um, It fails philosophically because it means that you can never challenge anyone. If we're free to do anything as long as we don't hurt someone, who is to say when you have actually hurt someone? And if you say, somebody says, well, you hurt me, then they can say, well, it doesn't matter because I don't believe the same way you do. And so I don't believe you're really hurt. I mean, it's just... It's just inconsistent. It can't happen. By defining that someone can be hurt, as a matter of fact, you are, in fact, limiting your freedom. So philosophically, it's impossible to live by. And that's interesting. But the real problem is that this definition of freedom fails to understand and recognize the complexity of the human heart. First, the heart often contains contradictory things. I want to live to a ripe old age. Some of you would think I already have, so be careful, all right? All right. I I would like to live to a riper, older age, okay? We'll say that. How's that? But I want to eat what I want to eat, when I want to eat it, and as much as I want to eat of it, right? I have contradictory desires. What am I free to do? What does freedom mean in that? I get to do whatever I want to do, right? The second thing is... um, The one thing that the human heart is not free from is its own desire to love or worship something or someone. Put another way, the human heart is always loving or worshiping something. It may be another person, it may be a career, and it may be wealth. But that loving and worshiping, by definition, will encumber and limit someone's, your freedom. For example... If I love my wife, then I am not free to do whatever I want when I want to. We all learned that was a painful thing to learn, right? When we got married, right? If I worship my career, then it will mean that I will work all the time and I will not be free to vacation, to relax, and to unwind. Oh, I've got to be careful. That kind of describes me. Uh, okay, all right. Um, if I worship wealth then it will mean that I'm not free to give to others to meet their needs. You see, if we're going to worship something, if we're going to love something, then, then we can't just do what we want to do. We're going to be limited. So this secular view of freedom to do whatever you want to do, anytime you want, unencumbered by anything, just fails in its own terms. So that's not what it means to be free in Christ. And freedom in Christ also does not mean that you're free to sin. As a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, you are forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, future. But freedom in Christ does not mean that you're free to just ignore that and go sin. We all know Paul quashes that idea in Romans 6. And even if he didn't, how could a believer who really understands the nature of sin and the penalty that Jesus paid on the cross for each of those sins, how could such a believer say, well, I'm just going to go sin some more? It shouldn't happen. So then what does it mean to be free in Christ? 
So now let me give you a brief and certainly non-exhaustive list of what it means to be free in Christ. It means that we are free from the yoke of sin. That means that while we are not able to never sin on this side of heaven, we are able sometimes, and maybe even a lot of the time, to not sin. Freedom in Christ means that you are free from fear. We are free from fear about what others think. We are free to act as God pleasers and not as man pleasers because our meaning and value does not come from what others think about us, but from our position in Christ. We are free from fear about the future because we know that our eternal place is secure. We need not fear those who can harm us, even kill us now, because our hope is in what is to come, not what is now. We are even free like the Israelites from the fear of the events of our day because we know that God is sovereign and working things out to his glory and his own pleasure. And God will always preserve a remnant who will love and serve him. We might not be that remnant, but he will always preserve a remnant. Freedom in Christ also means that you're free from guilt and shame. As I said, we're all forgiven. We all know that. And if we truly understand that forgiveness, we're actually going to be free from guilt and shame. Now, not that we won't recognize the weight of the sin and the penalty that was paid, but we no longer have to feel guilty and ashamed. Freedom in Christ means that you're free from works righteousness. You don't have to constantly measure yourself against the law and against others. God does not value you because you do right things. You do right things because you're highly valued by God. And then freedom in Christ means that you're free to be the person you were meant to be. Human beings were created in the image of God. And that means many things, but it means at least that we were created to be in relationship with one another and that we were created to love one another. But as I said earlier, we tend to worship when, what we love, and so those relationships go awry. They, they get all messed up. But if we're free in Christ, that means that we have put our first love in and worship God. And then we're free to be in proper relationship with one another and to be able to properly, fully, and unreservedly love another, one another. I didn't say perfectly, okay? So we're not going to be perfect at that. We're still going to hurt each other. We're still going to be hurt some. But being free in Christ means that the relationships are correct and we are free to love one another. I would sum this all up by saying that being free in Christ means not that we have the freedom to do anything we want, but we have the freedom to do good whatever the cost. That is what I think it means to be free in Christ, to be able to do good, whatever the cost. The Israelites in our passage today are just beginning to understand the cost of being free from the Egyptians. Likewise, if we're going to use our freedom in Christ wisely, we need to understand that there will be a cost. And that cost could be emotional, reputational, physical, or financial. There is a cost to us as we're in relationship with one another and give up our rights as we love our neighbors as ourselves. There is a cost to love others even when we they seem sorry even when they seem to us unlovable or have done things to hurt us or we just or they disagree with us. 
There's a cost to seek and speak the truth. There's a cost to understand that words matter and to speak words of calm and encouragement and forgiveness in the midst of the raging verbal storms that are around us. There's a cost as we seek and demand justice and accountability at all levels in our society. And there's going to be a sure cost to us as we provide best we can for the needs of those around us who are unable for a host of reasons to provide for themselves. How in the world will we bear that cost? How will we bear the cost of using our freedom in Christ wisely? Well, we'll be able to bear it because we'll remind ourselves, as Todd said, of God's purposeful way and caring presence. And ultimately, we'll be able to bear it because Jesus has borne the cost for us to make us free. And we are free indeed. You know, as I tried to describe a little bit of the experience of the Israelites and the Egyptians and their initial experience of freedom, I'm sure some of you are comparing that to other times and places of slavery in history. And you, well, you should. Perhaps it made you think of those experiences of African Americans on our own soil. Perhaps it made you think of those in concentration camps in World War II. Perhaps it made you think of those who lived behind the Iron Curtain. Perhaps it made you think of those who now live in the oppression that poverty brings. And those are all serious thoughts and important thoughts. But I hope some of you compared it to when you came to believe in Jesus. And the freedom I hope you felt when you did so. I don't know your experience in coming to Jesus. For some of you, it was a slow process, almost imperceptible, where your heart turned to love Jesus. And you realized one day, oh my, I've become a believer and a follower of Jesus. For some of us, it was a very specific time and place where we committed ourselves to Jesus. But no matter what your story is, I hope one day you realize that the weight and pressure of sin and shame and the need for performance and works righteousness have been lifted off of you as you entered into the freedom of Christ. And I hope you join me in trying to make sure that we use our freedom in Christ wisely to do good, no matter what the cost. For the benefit of our church, for the benefit of our community and society, for the glory of God. And may it be so, O Lord, our God and Redeemer. Amen.